Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast Series, Rett Syndrome Today and Tomorrow. I'm your host, Dr. David Lieberman. I'm an instructor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and attending child neurologist at Boston Children's Hospital. With me today to discuss treatment options for Rett Syndrome is Dr. Jeffrey Newell, who is director of the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center and professor of pediatrics, pharmacology, and special education at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Our learning objective for this podcast is to assess efficacy and safety for emerging treatments for Rett syndrome using the latest clinical evidence. Before we begin, I have a quick housekeeping note. This episode is accredited for 0.5 AMA, PRA Category 1 credit, ACPE contact hours, ANCC contact hours, and AAPA contact hours. After listening to this podcast, click on the link in the show notes to take the post-test and earn your CE or CME credits. All right, Dr. Newell, let's get started. Now, in my previous discussion on a podcast with Dr. Standridge, we discussed some symptom management as it is taking place today. And I think we'd like to discuss some ways we're going to be looking at symptom management in the future, particularly looking at research using our pharmacologic agent in the treatment of Rett syndrome. And there's a couple of agents in late stage development. And I'd like to start off by discussing trofinitide. This is a tripeptide analog of the insulin growth factor. And I'll let you discuss it and hear what you have to say. Oh, yeah, great. Well, I think it's good to start off a conversation like this with what has led to the growth in this clinical development of, of potential novel therapies in Rett syndrome. And really it starts back with the gene discovery in 1999. Most of the cases of Rett syndrome is mutations in this methyl CPG binding protein 2, MECP2. And obviously that provides an insight into the pathophysiology of the disease, but having that genetic basis allows the ability to do genetic engineering and create animal models or cellular models. And a number of these things have happened and created animal models that have provided further insight. And importantly, in 2007, work from Scotland from Adrian Bird's lab showed that by using genetic engineering trickery, you can have a mouse that doesn't have MECP2 Express and they get sick and you can turn it back on even after they're sick and they get better. And that was really a monumental finding and really changed the way I think everybody started thinking about Rett syndrome and even more broadly about neurodevelopmental disorders, that there could be a potential to actually have significant disease modification or even reversal if you could intervene in the right way. And so that really set the stage for people driving into this. And really one of the first work that came out after that genetic reversal was work from folks at MIT where they treated these RET mice with a tripeptide that was derived from the amino terminus of insulin-like growth factor one, like you said, IGF-1. So it's just the three amino acids that's a naturally cleaved product. And they showed that this could improve the survival, it could improve the locomotion, it could improve the heart rate variability that we're seeing in these RET syndrome mice. And so that led to two parallel clinical development. 
on one side, you had people at Boston Children's Hospital trying to treat with insulin-like growth factor one, the whole protein, which is an approved therapy for people who have insulin-like growth factor one deficiency. So that could move into trying to repurpose this in clinical trials. And there was a phase one trial of that, which showed that it was safe and well-tolerated in young children and seemed to have signals of efficacy. A subsequent phase two trial, where it was double-blind placebo-controlled, not crossover, also found that it was safe and well-tolerated, but did not show the signals of efficacy that were observed in the original open-label phase one trial. On the other side is the development using a, a compound called trifinitide. So trifinitide is a tripeptide, just like the tripeptide from IGF-1. In fact, it's the same thing, but the difference is it has been methylated, which improves the drug quality of it. It can be absorbed after taken orally, and it has a longer half-life. So based on the work of the tripeptide, the IGF-1 tripeptide in mice, the clinical development of trofinitide in Rett syndrome was started. So that went through a couple phases. Uh, first, there was a phase two trial of older teenagers and adults in Rett syndrome for a fairly short period of time, either 14 or 28 days. And that showed that this trofinitide was safe and well-tolerated and showed actual signals of efficacy, which was pretty surprising because it was a very short amount of time in older individuals with RET. Subsequently, another phase two trial was conducted with trofinitide, but now this time in children, a pediatric population, a little longer duration and uh, higher doses. And that showed that it was safe and tolerated and showed clear signals of efficacy. Move forward to a phase three trial that was completed and the top level results were reported in December, 2021. It's called the LAVENDER trial. And this used treatment of people who were five to 20 years old with a single dose of trofinitide or placebo, both given orally in a liquid solution, either by mouth or by G-tube twice a day. And it lasted 12 weeks. And the results were that people showed improvement that was judged by a clinician-rated scale called the Clinical Global Impression of Improvement, and a caregiver scale, which is called the Rett Syndrome Behavioral Questionnaire, or the RSBQ. Those were the co-primary endpoints. Both of those showed that people on trofinitide were statistically better than the people on placebo. So that's the top-level results. There's a, a secondary outcome that was a communication, a nonverbal communication scale that the caregiver completed. That also showed that trofinitide, people on trofinitide did better than the people on placebo. So that's the top-level results for the LAVENDER trial. So I, I know there's an ongoing open-label daffodil trial involving 14 girls aged two to five with RET. I think they're planning to look for a total of 26 months, and they're looking at a period of time of 12 weeks, which is the same length as the phase three lavender trial. And then they'll do another period of 20 weeks or so to look at long-term effects of trofinitide. And I know they're looking at some safety endpoints and some secondary endpoints like the, the CGI severity scale, the CGI improvement and the Childhood Neurologic Disability Scale. 
and that there's just been some preliminary reports at the Child Neurology Society meeting that showed there was some markers of clinical improvement by both the CGI and the Childhood Neurologic Disability Scale. I understand that trofinitide was just recently approved by the FDA. Yeah. And I think that in the Lavender Phase 3 trial, there were some noted side effects that were seen. The people in the trofinitide group had diarrhea. About 80% of the people in the trofinitide group had diarrhea versus 20% in the placebo group. Similarly, there was an increased rate of uh, vomiting in the trofinitide group compared to the placebo. Uh, most of the cases that were reported for these adverse events like diarrhea and vomiting were in the mild to moderate range. There was no mortality in either group. There was nothing in that level. So the diarrhea and nausea and vomiting, which was present at higher rates in the trofinitide, is similar to what was seen in the previous phase two trials, that those were the higher level issues uh, related to diarrhea. But yes, you're right. Trofinitide was just recently approved by the FDA for use in Rett syndrome. Well, David, I also know that there is ongoing trials with another compound, blarcamazine. Do you know much about that? Yeah. So blarcamazine was trialed in some other disorders initially, now has been moved to look at its role in potentially treating Rett syndrome. It's a sigma-1 receptor agonist and it activates sigma-1 receptors in the endoplasmic reticulum. It modulates the activity of a number of ion channels and signaling molecules. And some of its targets are inositol phosphates, protein kinases, and calcium channels. And it helps to modulate calcium homeostasis and mitochondrial function. And there's some other potential roles for this compound to attenuate oxidative stress linked to inflammation, increase release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which we know is, is decreased when MECP2 is deficient. Some other potential mechanisms of action of the bacarmacin is by sigma-1 protecting healthy gene expression through chromatin remodeling and preventing toxic RNA from translating into proteins. But what was done in studies initially in the U.S., there was a phase two safety, tolerability, and efficacy study. It was in adults. Patients were 18 to 45 years of age. They had to have classic Rett syndrome. They were treated with the compound for seven weeks. And I think there were a total of 25 patients. The primary endpoint was safety. Secondary endpoints were the Rett syndrome behavior questionnaire, the ADAM scale, which is an anxiety, depression, and mood scale. They looked at the clinical global impression of improvement as a secondary endpoint, as well as sleep measures and caregiver concerns. They also kept seizure diaries. And there were improvements in the RSBQ score seen in about 60% or 67% of responders. And so those responder group mean that they had to have at least one full improvement point in their clinical global impression improvement. And they saw about an 80% improvement in the CGI responder group. A phase three adult study as well in Australia and UK, they call this the avatar study. This involved 33 participants. They were also 18 to 45 years of age treated for seven weeks, looking at the same Rett syndrome behavior questionnaire in which they saw 72% of patients showing responses compared to 38% on the placebo. 
And in the ADAMS, which was a secondary outcome measure, they saw a 52% improvement versus a placebo of 8%. And in the CGI, they saw that the treatment group showed improvement in 72% of patients compared to 38% of placebo. And those were statistically significant. The current trial is being conducted in a phase two or three trial. This is called the excellence trial. It's a pediatric trial. The patients are five to 17 years of age. They're going to be treated uh, for a total of 12 weeks with open-label extension, and they're looking at the RSBQ as well as safety measures, and these trials are being conducted in Australia, Canada, and the UK, and they hope to enroll about 84 participants. One interesting point that they weren't looking at as a primary or secondary endpoint was what happens with seizures but there was roughly a 50% reduction in weekly seizure risk on the experimental compound. So I think there's going to be interest in what that does since many of our patients with Rett syndrome also have comorbid epilepsy. Some of the side effects seen were uh, somnolence, uh, lethargy uh, in roughly 20% of patients compared to 15% of placebo, constipation in 10% versus about 8% in placebo. So not, not a significant difference. And we'll have to see whether this is going to be presented to the FDA as another potential agent for our red patients. Right. Do you think there is, for trifinitide, having seen the top-level results that have been presented, do you think that there may be certain patients you've seen that would be more responsive to that or less responsive? Well, as we discussed, treating early younger ages hopefully would produce more robust results. Well, from the work done in the MECP2 knockout mouse in Adrian Bird's lab, where they reversed RET symptoms even in late stage males that were showing a lot of clinical features, we're hopeful that we'll be able to impact symptom in all RET patients, even older ones as well. If you look at what made up the RSBQ, the responses from the parents, there's really a scattering of, of symptoms that showed improvement. So it, it wasn't really focused on one particular area. It wasn't just ambulation or hand function or communication. There's, there's lots of variability. So these are the kind of compounds we could treat many of our patients with and look forward to seeing what changes we see in individual patients. Yeah, unlikely the original, the first phase two trial, trifinitide, was in adults and it showed some signals of efficacy. So maybe that there's something to benefit from a wide age ranges. What about with blocamazine? From what you've seen for the results, do you think this might have a, a type of patient or an age range for people with Red syndrome? If it does pan out to, to look good, that it might be more something you target, or do you think it also might have broad applicability? I guess I would I would expect to see broad applicability. I think we'll have to see where the results from these pediatric trials lead us, but the kind of impact it has on cellular function, improving basically neuronal function, probably for potentially a variety of disorders, sets it up as a something to try in a number of our patients as well. And we'll have to see whether this could even be given in conjunction with trophinotype because that might be something that some of our patients would want to try. Mm -hmm. Why don't you also give us a little bit of updates on, there was a trial of ketamine that was initiated in patients with Rett syndrome after a number of early stage preclinical studies of ketamine in the animal model. 
Yeah, so people have shown that treatment of, again, the animal model with ketamine at sub-anesthetic doses, and actually it should be sub-dissociative doses, so lower than you'd give to anesthetize somebody or even lower than the levels that they give to people for severe depression, improved a number of features in the animal model of RET. So with support from a disease foundation, RET Syndrome Research Trust, we did a short duration trial of oral ketamine, sub-anesthetic doses of oral ketamine in people with Rett syndrome. And it really was short. It was only five days of drug exposure and it was a crossover. So people were randomly assigned to either placebo or triketamine for the first period. And then there was a washout and then they were crossed over and we were all blind to it. The goal for that was to have four doses in escalation and four different cohorts of individuals who would get the lowest. And then if it was safe, there would be a new cohort that would go highest. But during the time we were doing the trial at multiple sites, it became COVID time and it was very hard to recruit. So eventually we stopped after just the first two doses. And thus far, the data indicates that it seemed to be pretty safe and well tolerated. It's still being analyzed in terms of understanding if there was any signals of efficacy. It also included measurements of breathing, even at home, and EEG measures. So I think we're interested in seeing if there was anything, any effect of this on the oral ketamine. So obviously thoughts for treatment of Rett syndrome always come back to gene therapy since the, the, the MECP2 gene was identified as the cause of Rett syndrome. What are your thoughts for future treatments involving gene therapy? Yeah, obviously, again, with the genetic rescue experiments, it's always been very tantalizing and appealing that you might be able to give back the gene and that would improve things like it was in the mice. There are additional challenges when you Think about gene therapy. There's always a challenge with gene therapy for a central nervous system disease to actually get the gene therapy into the brain and the cells and the neurons and widely distributed. But in in Rett syndrome, there's some additional challenges in that there are people who have duplication of the MECP2 gene, and that causes a severe neurodevelopmental disorder called MECP2 duplication syndrome, which I would say it's as severe and in some cases maybe more severe, like in terms of seizures than people with rest. So you don't want to overshoot and you don't want to have too much. So you need to have a, a tight window. And there's issues related to ideas about X chromosome inactivation that affected girls who have Rett syndrome. Really in every cell in their body, they either have a mother's X chromosome on or a father's X chromosome on. So because the mutation is only on one of those two, Essentially, they're a mosaic of cells that have a good copy of MECP2 and cells that don't. So you have the added challenge that half the cells potentially in an affected girl's body have the right amount, so they're maybe more susceptible to overshoot. That all said, there have been a number of work that's been done in animal models, testing out gene therapy, showing the potential of it working, and even the development of various methodologies to try to limit the overexpression of MECP2 so it won't get too high. So there are two companies. One has started a, a gene therapy trial in Canada 
And another company has announced that they will be launching a gene therapy trial in Rett syndrome in the upcoming period of time. So I think that we are seeing the advancements in gene therapy. So these trials are coming. I think we will be experiencing them. And it's exciting, the idea that these advanced methodologies might be developed that could meaningfully impact the disease progression of Rett syndrome and help improve people's lives. But they're experimental therapies and they have to be tried and they all have risks. And so it'll be an important period of time to see the development of this. Yeah, the pace of clinical trials in Rett syndrome in the last few years is something that's remarkable to see in a neurodevelopmental disorder. There's just been a lot of interest in Rett and a lot of possibilities for clinical improvement. It really speaks to the power of being able to develop these genetic models of cell and animal models because it gives the opportunity to try things out. I think there are work being done in these models exploring the idea of reactivation of an inactive X chromosome that might have the good copy of the MECP2 gene, looking at other drugs that allow read-through of types of mutations like nonsense mutations, things like gene and RNA editing. And all of these things are being evaluated preclinically in Rett syndrome. I think we're going to continue to see development using a variety of approaches and methods. So I really feel like there's a lot of potential for things to be changing in, in terms of our management of Rett syndrome. As we discussed, we are seeing a successful clinical trial in Rett syndrome kind of pathway on how to continue to do the evaluation. So we might have new drugs available to help people, and we might have continued clinical development of other things, therapies that might continue to move along that path. So I think it's a very exciting and hopeful time. All right. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Newell. We've covered a lot of exciting information. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We hope this podcast has enhanced your understanding of emerging options for Rett syndrome. As a reminder, to earn credit for this podcast, click on the link in the show notes. If you haven't already listened to the first two episodes in this series, be sure to check them out on the Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.